Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from St. Petersburg, Florida. Welcome to the show, David Foster. Hey, thank you, Victor. I, I clap and shake your hand virtually, but I'm too busy trying to keep it warm in this weather. <laughs> Lovely. Well, great to have you here. You know, Dave, you've been at this game for a while, and we're going to be talking a little bit about some tax deferral strategies today, which I'm excited about because there's it's an important topic. But before we do, perhaps you could give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey. Sure. Well, it's, you know, actually 1031 is pretty a, a key part of my entire journey. We actually uh, started out as real estate, as accidental real estate investors trying to find a way off of the corporate train. And so like so many people today, we said, well, gosh, real estate sounds easy and fun. Let's do it. So I bought a duplex in Denver in the 90s, fixed it up, rented it, sold it, made what I thought was a ton of money until I went to my accountant that winter. And he said, wow, do you have a big tax bill? I said, wait a minute, that was not part of the game. Nobody told me about my silent partner, Uncle Sam. And so at that moment, that $30,000 mistake began to just eat at me. And since I'm an accountant and since I'm kind of a tax nerd, I began to dive into ways to never have to go through that again. And that's when I found the 1031 exchange, the court case that had just been lost by the IRS that now allowed regular investors like you and I access to that tool easily. And so from that point on, we began using them for ourselves and to the point where we were able in 10 years to buy a 53-foot sailboat with tax-free dollars, move our children onto it, and live off of our tax-deferred real estate investments for the next 10 years. Loving that so much, we wanted to do it for others. And so that's what's had me doing 1031s for other folks now for over 23 years. It's been a great journey. I love it. From one sailor to another, I love that story. Uh, where do you sail? Or is it on the Gulf Coast there? Yeah, we started on the Gulf Coast. I uh, ended up all around the Keys, both coasts of Florida, uh, the Bahamas. We went everywhere. We had a ball. Fantastic. When we talk about tax deferred exchanges, there's, of course, many different tax treatments. And of course, for the listeners at home, we're not here to provide tax advice because everyone's circumstance is situation specific. So definitely want to reach out to your own specialists, your own CPAs, your own tax lawyers, and so on. Make sure that whatever happens is is proper for your circumstance. But this might arm you with at least a few questions to ask your own specialists. One of the things that we see is that not necessarily all real estate is in fact receiving capital gains treatment. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's that's really true. There's there's quite a bit of confusion still around that. There's actually two qualifying phrases that people get hung up on. The first phrase that the IRS uses is like kind. What is like kind? And that really is nothing more complicated than it is real estate. Any type of real estate is considered like kind for any other type of real estate. So that becomes a key strategy when you're doing 1031 exchanges, because the whole key with the 1031 is to defer as long as you can pay that tax, because that allows you the compounding effect. That $30,000 that I had to pay 30 years ago, if I would have been able to keep that and you compounded that over 30 years, that's well over $300,000 more in my pocket off of one transaction. 
So it's how long can I keep it deferred? But so many times, Victor, as you know, people don't like to stay in the same type of investing. They may start out on single family, move to multifamily, to raw land, to commercial, to industrial. Regardless of the type of real estate, it is all considered like kind, including some really weird stuff like oil, natural gas, and mineral resources are considered real estate. Condominiumized boat slips are considered real estate. So there's some real real interesting stuff. But the ideas that you want to take away with this is that like kind is real estate and it's any time. Now, the second phrase, though, is qualified use. And that's where a lot of people can get hung up because qualified use means that it is real estate, which is like kind, but it is real estate that has been purchased with the intent of holding for productive use in business, trade, or for investment. So the two general things you see from that right away are that, number one, it's not your primary residence. That has different treatments in the tax code that are actually more advantageous. So it's not, it's investment real estate. And secondly, within investment real estate, there's kind of a subsection in there, the difference between an investment real estate or inventory real estate. What it comes down to is the difference in your intent. If your intent is primarily to resell the property, think fix and flippers, uh, many times developers, those type of folks whose intent is to buy it, to fix it and sell it, primarily to sell it, they cannot do 1031 exchanges because their intent was not to hold for productive use. So when we talk about that, let's look at a land example for a moment, just to try and make it a little bit more clear. So let's say you purchase a 40-acre parcel of land. Maybe it was a hobby farm, something like that. And eventually, at some point in time, the idea is to get it rezoned and subdivided into 80 half-acre lots, let's say. And you're going to build roads and all of that sort of infrastructure. At what point does it transition from that held for investment intent to where is that line where it now becomes trading in land and gets ordinary business income treatment? That, that's actually a great way of phrasing it. Where's that line? Because there's not a bright one. Because when you're dealing with issues such as intent, it becomes, you, you become a, not a slave, but you become beholden to past case law, but you also have to look at your current circumstances. So we we see a lot of this down here, Victor, at uh, the interchanges of uh, interstates where it's just agricultural land around it. And at that interchange, there has not been yet a city that has come out to it. Progress hasn't made it out that way yet. So on all four corners of that interstate, there's going to be a bunch of cows in a pasture. The reason for the cattle in the pasture is that that keeps the agricultural zoning and it provides them an opportunity to show that their intent in holding that property is productive use. How? They're raising for it. They're raising cattle on it. So they buy that property. They put the cows on it. As you said, it's now a few years later. They have a property that would qualify for a 1031 exchange because they can show that they bought it and their intent was to hold it for productive use uh, through actual revenue generation from the cattle we're simply holding without developing for long-term appreciation. So they could do a 1031 exchange. But what you're talking about is 
the city has now come out there and they're thinking, gosh, this would make a great subdivision or off-ramp, a gas station, whatever. So we're going to take that 40 acres and we're going to turn that into, say, 20 single-family home sites. There's a general rule of thumb that every attorney wants to get their teeth into that says that that it tries to define when you have changed the nature of the land. And in general, it's been seen that as long as you don't turn a shovel, things like entitlements, annexations, things that give you rights, but don't actually change the land, don't impact the land. So I could take that 40 acres of agricultural land and turn that into 20 two-acre lots. And that has not changed the nature of that. I still have a 40-acre parcel, but I have the right to put 20 home sites on that. When I start to change the land is usually seen when I turn a shovel. I put a street in, I put utilities in, I put driveways in. I now no longer have a 40-acre piece, do I? I have 20 two-acre parcels that are identifiable and legally divisible. And at that point in time, Victor, that's usually when it is seen that you have crossed that threshold and are now a dealer slash developer or builder. And you've turned that from a long-term capital gain, 1031 eligible, into inventory for your business. Typically, the zoning process has multiple stages to it. There would be, for example, the zoning change, which would change the permitted use. That's step number one. And then there would be a planned use development where the actual subdivision gets planned out and all the future property boundaries get drawn. And uh, that would go to something called preliminary plat approval, where at that point it is, let's say, approved by city council. Then after that, there would be what's called final plat approval, where you really at that point have completed the actual subdivision and and changed the property boundaries. Presumably at that preliminary plat stage, from what I just heard, that would be no issue to have that still subject to capital gains treatment. And arguably even at the final plat, as long as you haven't put a shovel in the ground. Well, yeah, because you said something really interesting and this this really piggybacks off of that. When you said you've changed the property boundaries, In one sense, you really haven't. You have given yourself through the final plat process the opportunity to change the property boundaries because you can now sell them as individual lots. But the original property boundary, the original property use are still not precluded. So that could still be an agricultural piece of ground with the rights to build 20 single family homes. And so that's where, you know, again, this is why I said a lot of lawyers like to get their teeth into this because it's going to be wherever you feel comfortable coming down. But that's why the general principle has always been, till you turn a shovel, you're okay. I love it. This is something that a lot of folks that approach us, our company, we even have a consulting division where often clients will approach us and they'll say, you know, I've got a piece of dirt. What can I do with it? What would be highest and best use? And they often come into it thinking that, uh, of course, they're going to be subject to capital gains treatment. And of course, we're not here just like on the podcast. We're not here to provide tax advice, but we also caution them that uh, simply assuming it's going to be subject to capital gains treatment might not be correct. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's actually one of those key metrics that folks who want to develop land have to go through because there's an opportunity cost when you're developing, not just in the cost of the exercise. You know, as you guys well know, it's it's not 
easy or cheap necessarily, is it? But there's also an opportunity cost in changing the use of the land. Because yeah, you might think that it becomes more valuable, but the taxation becomes more onerous as well. And you've got selling costs and consulting costs and things like that all the way along. So it's, it's always an interesting exercise to actually go through that. Now, if you want to, we could spend a couple of minutes. There is a great hack that many of our clients have found that lets them sort of have their cake and eat it too with this. Absolutely. It's a concept that uh, it loosely is called land banking. It involves the idea of creating multiple entities so that you have within your framework of companies an entity that is a real estate investment holder and an entity that is a developer. And what you would do is you would buy the land as the investor and you hold it for investment. You sell it to another entity of a different entity type with a different designation. And that land then becomes inventory for that. So you're able to buy, sell, do 1031 exchanges. You're selling to an investment arm and that investment arm is then developing the rest of the land. So you've got a bunch of extra steps in the middle, but it's a pretty neat way to keep going with that piece of land if you want to and still let yourself get 31 out of it. So you're basically able to get a partial step up in basis by deeding it to another entity and getting capital gains treatment for part of the value creation. And then after you turn a shovel, then the rest will be subject to ordinary business income. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And those, the, the 1031 exchange side of it, the investor side, is always looking for your next acquisition target, grabbing it, holding on to it. Uh, many times our folks will buy agricultural land and then lease it back to the farmer for a number of years while they're waiting for their development side to catch up to it. Fantastic. Well, David, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? We have created a, an entire strategic educational website on this because it's not something that the IRS is very keen to advertise, is it? At the1031investor.com. That's the easiest place to catch us. You can get to our YouTube channel through there. I've written a book that will help you navigate 1031 throughout your life cycle from beginner to the end of the road as a real estate investor called Lifetime Tax-Free Wealth. The Real Estate Investor's Guide to the 1031 Exchange. You can catch all of that at the1031investor.com. Fantastic. Well, Dave, love what you're doing. And for the listeners at home, definitely connect with David Foster at the1031investor.com. Link will be in the show notes. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow. 